0: please welcome back our returning champ you know him as david roundtree uh because that's his name frankly ghost hunter extraordinaire <laughs> author of the brand new tome paranormal technology understanding the science of ghost hunting uh david thank you very much for coming back and doing the show again
1: oh my pleasure thanks for having me i always have a good time when i talk to you guys
0: and jeff fritzman is here as well yeah uh, hi
2: it's like a reunion. I know. <laughs> have I not been here? I did the last show by myself. goddammit. Oh, What's right. going on <laughs> here?
0: Uh, no, I just I thought it would be nice to have us all together instead of just me. Oh yeah.
2: You
0: know, no no
1: I, I am I am truly honored, and I'm sure your audience is going to be honored as well. <laughs> Which, <you know? laughs>
2: well
0: that's Well because you're what here. To hear, yeah. <laughs> the,
1: the melding of two minds once again. You know that you guys you know together.
0: Well, help us meld minds on your book here. First, uh, tell us what your book is about. I'm assuming it's sort of a tech manual on ghost hunting or no?
1: Well, it's it's uh, it's so much more than that. Um, I started on the project two years ago, and it came from frustration of seeing things on TV that were just technically wrong and realizing that, thousands of people across the world were probably watching this and emulating some of the things that they saw. And I was thinking, you know, somebody needs to set this all right or put down a foundation for what's really at play here because so many people are doing the same things over and over again because of tradition, not because they understand what they're doing specifically or understand the piece of equipment that they're using or what it's actually measuring and what that actually tells you and a lot of other actualities. Um, so I I sat down and I said, you know what? I'm going to write a field manual for paranormal researchers. And even though it's kind of focusing on the ghost hunting aspect, the technology is very is is cross cross discipline. I mean, there's if people are interested in UFOs, there's information in there for you people are into cryptozoology, there's information in there for you. I mean, it kind of touches on technology that's used across the board in in anything that we're doing because we're basically measuring changes in environment um, that is, you know, centered around this unexplainable activity regardless of what category it falls in.
0: Let me ask you just really quickly, just because you said tradition, and uh, when you say traditional technology, I mean, are you talking about Basically, just things they've seen on Ghost Hunters and other paranormal shows that they figure
1: work. Yeah, everything on TV. I mean, for example, why do people use EMF meters? Because they've seen people use EMF meters. Right. They have no idea what they're really measuring for the most part. I mean, some do. I'm using a blanket statement here because there are some groups out there that really have their their, their stuff together and they know what they're doing. But there's some groups out there that, you know, really don't have a lot of background in science. They really, you know, they they saw something and they're emulating it, or they were in a group that was doing something that has basically been doing the same thing for the last 10 years. And they're using a lot of equipment, kind of like an electronic Ouija board, because it's like as seen on TV. Uh And what the book is really about, it's Many things on many levels. It's, it's a field guide, whether you're a seasoned veteran or whether you're a beginner. It's an excellent book for a group to use as a training manual for new members. Uh, it's a textbook. It's a, it's a story. And really what it does is, is it takes each piece of equipment that is used in the field today from a camera all the way through to some very exotic equipment and it explains what's going on with it, what it does, how to use it, what it's measuring, um, what it means, how to put that information together with other information to build a case for something unusual happening, and really a series of protocols on not only how to use it, but kind of how to do, when you get through with the whole book, you have a grand idea of how to do a scientific investigation. And it's written at two levels. Each chapter has a a technical part of it, and each chapter has a, you know, lay term part of it. And the idea behind that was is not only to appeal to different levels of, of people in the field, but also to take people that aren't exposed to the scientific level and expose them to it through terms that they readily understand so that they can correlate the lay speak with the technical speak. And uh, the whole thing is a journey of, of learning
0: um, so what would, be, what would be the type of thing that, that you would uh, endorse as a technology? I mean, what, is, what do you think the best well, piece of equipment is out there?
1: Well, I actually, I go. there is no really best piece of equipment. That's a fallacy. What there is is, is a um, collection of data that different pieces of equipment give you. And by collecting all those bits of data, you build a picture of what's going on. And I go into that like one piece of equipment at a time. Now, I cover equipment that's garbage. I mean, I go into equipment that I don't recommend. I tell you why I don't recommend it, why it's not acceptable in the scientific community for research, why the data is meaningless from it. And it, it's kind of like it separates the weak from the chafe kind of thing. You know, it's like I go into, you know, it's it's great to have an EF, EMF meter, but it, it an EMF meter doesn't really tell you a whole lot. And then I tell you what does tell you a whole lot, you know, what you should be using with an EMF meter or instead of an EMF meter. I also tell – and I name different, you know, brand names and stuff that are, you know, uh, properly NIST calibrated, uh, which is also very important. Your equipment should be calibrated, particularly if you're gathering data to try to prove something. And uh, it's it's designed for people who have groups that want to collect scientific evidence, that want their evidence to stand up uh, over the long run as data that can be analyzed and added to the mix. It gives you all the protocols for how to build your case and how to build you know what's going on in a particular environment that's reportedly paranormal.
0: But in the end, does it really matter if science isn't going to pay attention anyway?
1: Science is starting to pay attention.
0: <laughs> Give me evidence. Where,
1: where are they Science. paying attention? Science. You, you, I am in a think tank right now that's a physics think tank. It's called theoretical physics. And I'm talking to probably eight or ten different physicists about what we're actually doing, what our research is doing. Um, I also have contacts at Princeton in the physics department that I talk to. Uh, of course, there are um, other professional individuals that are members of other organizations. Uh, particularly through the Ryan Center and other groups, that uh, there are a lot of scientists interested, listening, not willing to go out on the limb quite yet, but offering suggestions to further refine the evidence being gathered, uh, offering advice on experiments to do. Do you
0: do uh, blind tests?
1: Yes, we do. We do double-blind tests and triple-blind
0: tests. So, what, what would what would something like that? Because I'm sitting here, I'm imagining in my head. Okay. If you had, I don't know if you believe in Ouija boards or not, but if a Ouija board works, say, you have a group of people on a Ouija board, you have a psychic medium, you have somebody on some other detector, somebody asks a question, they all write down what they got as an answer. Uh, will it be the same answer? Has anyone ever done anything like that?
1: Oh, yeah, we've done it on a couple of experiments. One was a reverse speech experiment. And the other one was an experiment that we did on uh, testing for pareidolia and its effects on the the researchers. I took uh, 20 random researchers from different organizations and different levels of expertise. We artificially created an an EVP-like audio file. We created 10 of them, um, and we purposefully degraded them so that they were at the brink of understandability. And then we didn't tell anybody what it was about. We sent the ten files out, and we asked them to tell us exactly what they heard, and we told them they could do anything they wanted to to determine what they heard um, and Amazingly, what we got back was about fifty percent of the people got about eighty percent of it right. The rest got a lot less right. Uh, yeah. No one got a hundred percent right.
0: Do Ouija boards uh, work in your estimation?
1: Uh, why is there error? I mean, it's a subjective type of environment. You have an individual, you have individuals involved who are possibly could be manipulating the device. You just don't know. I mean, how do you test for that? Um, anything like that, that has a human element as part of the control is a subjective test. And so the data is kind of meaningless. I mean, it, 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 it makes you think that there's something going on based on perhaps content, but that's anecdotal evidence. That's not really acceptable evidence in the scientific community. It's a piece of the puzzle, but it takes a preponderance of way more evidence to prove something with something like that, and it's pretty much impossible to do it unless you rigged it up some way that it was robotically held in place or it moved by itself with no human intervention. Hmm. Um, people could be moving them subconsciously because everyone will swear no, I didn't move it but we don't know. You don't know what nerve endings do, and to take it in the other direction, it could be whatever's influencing it. could be influencing it through the human observer, the human interaction. So uh, until we get a little better at <clears throat> analyzing neural uh, impulses and things of that nature, it's going to be pretty difficult to prove a Ouija board one way or the other.
0: You do believe EVP is represents something not from here. I
1: I believe if we are going to prove the existence of life after death, I believe that EVP holds the best data set for doing that.
0: Okay, so what is, what would be, I don't know, a technological improvement uh, that you'd like to see or that you've made uh, to EVP devices?
1: Well, for one thing, we're using a device now that I've kind of designed Put together that's a direction finder and what it actually does is there are three detectors that are placed around a perimeter of a room in a triangle fashion so that you can get a triangulation on where EVP is actually emerging in the room and what this is based on just like a radio direction finder where they would use different receiving stations to pinpoint the location of a transmitter we're doing the same thing only instead of RF Uh, EMF. We're actually measuring low-frequency EMF, which is what an EVP is. So we're actually able to pinpoint the exact point of emergence in a room of where the EVP is, is, is coming from, where it's actually entering into our environment. And consequently, that gives us a point to concentrate a lot of additional instrumentation at the emergence point to try to study that interface and determine exactly what's going on and how this stuff is, act- is just coming into our environment at all. Um, spontaneous EMF like this uh, really has to have a source. It has to be transmitted from something. And when it's just appearing in the center of a room a couple feet off the floor out of nowhere with no apparent source, that opens up a whole bunch of possibilities.
0: One thing that people have been talking about on the forum uh, this last week is Chi Energy. And somebody posted a YouTube video of, uh, I don't know, he would be a master of some sort. But it was almost a BBC-style documentary on on this man who, I mean, in front of the camera, he creates fire with his hand on a newspaper on a sidewalk. Uh, mm-hmm. And he basically does healings. And when he created the fire, he then cut off all contact with everyone for years and said... You know, I shouldn't have done that. You're not supposed to show off. I was chastised by my master, et cetera, et cetera. But the basic mm-hmm. premise here is that, um, well, part of what he also did was uh, light a light bulb uh, with his hand just by holding mm-hmm. it. Um, so if this is to be trusted, what he's saying is chi energy uh, is not electricity. It's not electromagnetism. It's a whole other thing. And yet clearly... It has properties of electromagnetism, of lighting a light bulb, of well, see, I have a
1: problem. I have a problem with that explanation. Would this it has not to have be, a lot of properties?
0: Well, hold on a second. Would this not be uh, the same problem that you're running into with EVP, where you can, it's affecting well, we something? know you can pick up a recording, yeah. but you can't, you know, exactly pinpoint where this thing is. Uh, or well,
1: why. we know we, we know exactly what an EVP is. We're just not sure where it's coming from. We know the point where it enters into our reality where it enters into our universe we know that point we can trace it now we also have measured significant other data that tends to make us believe that we're dealing with the type of portal or wormhole type of construct that's uh... acting as a conduit for this stuff um... key energy is kind of an interesting thing um... certainly the people in the far east you know totally believe in it and accept it as real And I'm not saying it isn't real. I'm just saying until there is a study scientifically of it and an attempt to find some traceable, measurable uh, identity to what's going on, it's kind of conjecture at this point. I mean, was anyone actually had this guy hooked up to instrumentation while he's making fire? Probably not. Most of those folks don't allow that.
0: Uh, Well, they had him him hooked up when he was healing people. Well, what did they have him hooked
2: up to? They had him hooked into – I mean what he was doing, uh, Dave, was – like for instance, he had a uh, – he he could kind of converge energy and expel it out through his navel was one thing. And he had – basically the film crew people were sticking their hands uh, or or fingers on top of his navel. He would kind of like make this – Uh, like guttural jerking movement, and they would clearly be shocked just from their reaction. You could tell they were getting an electrical charge of some sort. And so when they went to... it's
1: not electrical, right?
2: Right. Well, when they actually put him on to... uh, I I think they actually ran an EMF uh, right over his midsection, and he tried to expel again this kind of... And they had a hand on there, and they had, you know, the the EMF... uh, And I think that... If I'm not mistaken, I think it was like a voltage meter or something. Yeah, they that's were what I was, I was searching for. And they got nothing. Uh, but clearly, clearly, you know, yeah. the person felt something, but it wasn't registering on any of their of their equipment at all.
1: First of all, let me explain something. I would have to know who actually was doing the test, sure. What their protocols were, what they were actually looking for and trying to measure. I mean without knowing the basis of the experiment that they were conducting, it's kind of conjecture at this point. Um, I have been working with mediums doing uh, tests to determine exactly how they get their information. And we've made some pretty interesting discoveries with that, Uh, specifically using uh, this new device that I've uh, uh, pretty much designed, as well as using an oscilloscope that is mated to a low-frequency EMF sensor. And... uh, This is just a different example of kind of a similar effect. Uh, What we have determined and found now in several several experiments in a row is that once the medium enters into their state of initiating communication, a very low-frequency EMF wave appears, spontaneously appears, but it's a very complex low-frequency waveform in that it has a low-frequency carrier but there is other frequencies riding on the carrier. Mm-hmm. So they're actually getting information much like a TV receives a transmission from a TV station. They're getting uh, visual and audio in their head to the point of where it's like a, a holographic chamber. They're emerged into an environment where they're witnessing and experiencing something and relating what they're doing, relating what they're they're experiencing. Uh, and and in, in every so far in every setup and every experiment we've used this at we have found a very similar waveform so and this waveform is emergent it's coming out of nowhere exists for the entire period that the mediums communicating and then it disappears at the end of the communication or once mm-hmm. someone uh breaks like if it's a circle and people are holding hands, if the holding hands breaks, the, the waveform stops. Um, and then it takes it a few moments once they begin again for it to reestablish. It's it's like a communication wave or a carrier wave, but it's EMF. It's low-frequency EMF. Hmm. Uh, in the case of Qi Energy, it would be interesting to run – I would like to design a series of experiments to uh, try to capture some indication of what's really going on.
2: Well, David, when it comes to the uh, the medium test, I'm curious: Are you, um, you know, when you have the medium sitting there and and you're detecting this this frequency going on and something riding in on it? Are you, number one, are you able to pinpoint where that's coming from? The way you can pinpoint where an EVP is coming from, yeah, and, same thing. It's it's it's
1: appearing pretty much near the center of the circle.
2: Really, okay.
1: in the case that we experienced, it was done in like an old fashioned seance where. People sat around in a big circle and held hands, and that's when it began. And then at one end of the room was the medium, and she was holding hands, of course, with everyone else in there. But Good. once it started, it began to emulate from approximately the center of that circle.
2: Huh. And, and also, when it comes to how about if the, the medium uh, element was removed, and you just did this with, I don't know, uh, four normal people who said they didn't think they were psychic at all. Uh, and had them do like kind of a focus of intent uh, well, we've tried to artificially
1: we've tried to artificially reproduce it with uh what I would call static hosts right uh, in which there were people who did not display any type of psychic or medium abilities, and it was not present wow huh. in fact it, it, in the way this stuff emerged, there were other people who were also looking at the instrumentation and were kind of amazed at what was going on, because there was a correlation between the stopping and starting and the appearance of this waveform, and it was every time. I mean, it never missed a time. Uh, well, so, what about, uh, uh, I mean, It's kind of fascinating. It's very uh, early, of course, in the experimentation process to make some kind of conclusion yet, but it's pretty compelling evidence right now, and it looks like we're looking in the right direction. So.
2: Well, I mean, does this kind of thing carry over right into uh, manifestations of, of, uh, you know, apparition-type stuff? I mean, are are you able to do – I I know you're really into the the EVP thing and the the audio, but is there equal progress being made by your team on visual data as well?
1: Absolutely right, because the EVP chase has led us to uh, almost like a grand unifying theory of the paranormal, because uh, I don't know if you're familiar with wormhole theory, but uh, at the throat of a wormhole, there tends to be a holographic barrier. And this holographic barrier uh, is just what it means, just what it says. It's the ability to project energy in the form of imagery or information or numerous other things. And what we believe is going on now, in parentheses, quotation marks, what we believe, based on the evidence, is, is that these wormholes connect. When they connect, they allow pure energy to pass through in various forms. In some instances, this pure energy can manifest itself as a projection of perhaps an individual or a thing or something of that nature and it shows as a holographic projection on the holographic barrier of this wormhole, and what we see is a ghost. Huh.
2: <laughs> okay.
1: Kind of uh, heavy. Yeah. yeah. And well, the theory behind it <laughs> is actually very solid in quantum mechanics. Um, yeah. And it's really the only thing that makes any kind of sense of what can be causing the manifestations, because if you'll notice, most people, when they see a ghost or they photograph a ghost – it's very wispy, it's generally partially see th- you can partially see through it. Mm-hmm. It has all the earmarks of a holographic projection.
0: Can it interact with and, the
1: environment and of course it interacts with the- well it interacts with what what may seem to be the environment because it's moving around in an area of a what we're witnessing, but we have no idea what the energy on the other side is witnessing. It may be dealing with something during its lifetime at that location? We don't know. There are also time anomalies involved with these things, which also uh, lends evidence to it being a wormhole. We've actually had uh, several instances where we've gotten our our time slip detector in place and and measured time anomalies around the throats of these uh, conduits.
2: So, so David, does that that necessarily mean that when someone experiences a, a ghost, and and just say, for, for the sake of argument, we're not talking about a purely experiential uh, event, but something that could possibly be documented in some way. Um, are we more or less talking about looking backwards in time versus Very possible. seeing the dead, per se?
1: Wormholes can be trans-time. They can go back and forward in in time. They can go to another place far away in this universe, they can go to another universe. So, the, yes, all those things are true. It could okay. be a time a, a time conduit. It could be, you know, we could be standing, and I believe this is the case in what they call a, uh, a, a residual haunt. Uh-huh. We are probably witnessing through this conduit <clears throat> an event from the past, just as it occurred in the past, like we were standing there when it happened, even though we're way into the future from it. But what some of these residual haunts may be is that we're getting a glimpse at that particular moment in history where we're seeing history over again as it's acting out. So we're actually looking back at a specific spot in time. And in most of these cases, there's no interaction. It's a witnessing situation where we're witnessing some subject doing something that appears oblivious to our even being present.
2: Well what, well, what do you think, what do you think, like, in the case of, of uh, well, in the case of my house, <laughs> in the case, in the case of my house, there's uh, no
1: broom big enough. <laughs>
2: yeah, I mean, I mean, let, let me ask you, I mean, well, okay, I mean, you, you and I love Gettysburg, so it's like, when I look at right. Gettysburg, what, I, I mean, of course, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Uh, Absolutely. Or it Absolutely. seems to be. and. So,
1: and there 's a lot of residual for the most part there 's way more residual than interactive, but there is interactive stuff going on there
2: right, so if there 's a lot of that residual going on there, or say it 's going on in my house or it 's going on in jeremy 's apartment what what is the what is the point, or i 'd say what would be the point of origin of why is the manifestation happening there or here or wherever um, what, what, no, there can be a lot of lot of different
1: reasons. It, well, do it, you think it,
2: about do you think about the 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 nature of liminality in some of these things or or uh, uh, sure?
1: I, you know. I think a lot of it has to do with um, uh, re- returning to source, returning to source point. Mm-hmm. Um, in other words, if someone died in a spot, they would go through or the essence of their consciousness as pure energy. Uh, as reported by people who have near-death experiences, go down a long tunnel with a light at the other end of it, exactly what a wormhole looks like. Mm-hmm. So if someone emerged into a wormhole, into a parallel universe to exist as a being of pure energy, let's just stretch this a little bit and assume it for a minute. Okay. Um, the point, much like when a Tesla coil fires up in a room and the energy bolts tend to follow the same path as the one before it because it's following a path of ionized molecules, much in the same way a wormhole would reconnect in exactly the same places where these people died because the wormhole connected there in the first place to allow them to exit this existence into wherever people go or wherever their consciousness goes Hmm. so it would only stand to reason that a certain amount of ionized matter existed between these two destinations that allowed these wormholes to reform in approximately the same position as they you know, have previously and continue to do so over the course of a historical period.
2: Hmm. So is it safe to say that you're looking at some kind of like reverberating shockwave of of energy that's 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 opening up for that person to go? And then it's kind of like a I don't know, it's kind of like a a ball expanding and contracting back and forth for a a certain period of time.
1: Uh, Think of it more like a long cosmic string. Mm, okay. And it's floating along the the okay. best analogy I came up with was like you have this pot of stew. All right? And the pot itself is the holographic boundary of the of the of the multiverse or of the megaverse or whatever you want to say. The um, the stew pot is filled with a whole lot of different universes. And that's like the carrots, the peas, the the beef, whatever. They're, those are all individual universes. Now they're floating around in this medium that doesn't allow them to really fully touch, but they do brush past each other, they roll past each other, but they don't actually interact in a macro scale with each other. However, that medium is made up of exotic matter, and it acts as an insulator to prevent universes from interfering with one another. But on a micro scale, universes connect with each other all the time through wormholes. And even Stephen Hawking acknowledges that Virtually millions of wormholes appear and blink in and out of existence on the Earth and in our universe every day. <clears throat> some of them are, are the size of a subatomic particle, such as a photon, by the way, which you can put a tremendous amount of information on. And some of them are quite large. For example, perhaps the Bermuda Triangle may have a very large or numerous smaller ones capable of, you know, sucking in a ship or an aircraft or whatever. Um, So it's very possible that a lot of the anomalous regions of the world are due to active wormhole activity. But I believe that wormholes are all around us all the time, and they come and go, and for the most part, we never notice them. Dead people, of course, probably do because they probably use them as a conduit for their consciousness to exit this realm. And this is all totally theoretical. Mm -hmm. It's just uh, we're making some suppositions here to try to paint a picture of what may be going on. Um, But from what I can tell, uh, what's occurring is actually kind of a neat thing. These wormholes are – a wormhole, theoretically, in physics, is a one-way conduit. In other words, traffic can only go in one direction. So if you entered into a singularity type of wormhole, you would never come back until you found the right wormhole to come back on. But interestingly, these wormholes show characteristics of being vortexual, which means there are probably a dual wormhole in a double helix configuration just like DNA that vortexually rotate and create a vortexual effect at their opening. And the reason that we don't all the time see these kind of effects is because of that holographic boundary that's at the throats. What is seen commonly on occasion is what looks like a heat mirage where the air is kind of shimmering over a hot asphalt highway. Right. Um, if you see something like that in your home, just like a little spot that's kind of flickering or shimmering, um, chances are that's probably a wormhole, an active wormhole. Huh. And it's actually bending the light due to the holographic boundary effect. So you're getting that shimmer. And it generally will have a resonant frequency that is the resonant frequency of the wormhole itself. And how these two wormholes combined is they start out as two separate cosmic strings, and they are vibrating each at their own frequency. But just like in a guitar store, if you pl- if you pluck the string on an acoustic guitar, every other acoustic guitar in the in the guitar store will start vibrating at that same frequency, right? Because the air will cause the other strings to vibrate at the at the same resonance as the one you just plucked well as these two strings approach each other they start shifting their frequencies and if there's one a little higher than the other one it starts to go down in frequency and the one that's a little lower starts to go up in frequency they entangle at a resonance that's different from each of their fundamental frequencies it's a difference between the two and then once they entwine they have sufficient enough exotic matter in the medium that they're in to stabilize and make the connection Um, After they make the connection, there's a tremendous amount of uh, small micro subatomic particle annihilations because the exotic matter has trouble with our matter, and consequently uh, gamma bursts of radiation began to occur from these annihilations, and eventually the exotic matter that's stabilizing the wormhole is consumed by these annihilations, and the wormhole collapses. Okay. only to float back out into the exotic matter, regain strength, reintertwine and reconnect over a period of time. So these things will reconnect and reconnect and reconnect in the same roughly the same spatial area over and over again. Uh who knows when it will end and who knows when it began, type of thing. Uh until whenever. I mean, we don't know, it could go forever, it could go who knows.
2: And you, so therefore it's It's unpredictable at that point. I mean, you can't predict. At this point, uh, we
1: can't predict an opening. Okay. Um, However, we are working on duplicating an opening, trying to generate a wormhole opening ourselves artificially.
2: Well, just try not to do it in your daughter's closet. That way we don't have to throw a rope in and pull you down through the living room ceiling.
1: Well, there's an interesting thing. If this theory (laughs) proves out to be true, uh, this could explain how UFOs get here, come and go, disappear. Right could explain how cryptozoological beasts get here and leave. Uh, it, it, it could explain every aspect of the paranormal that we're currently dealing with. Right. It could explain where mediums are getting their information through these conduits by this low-frequency carrier wave that is uh, facilitated by a wormhole opening and it broadcasting in. Uh, it really would be the uh, theory of everything in the paranormal if it turns out to be true
2: well well do you David do you think there's any portion of this um i don't know that's that's related to human consciousness in the sense that are we able to somehow or uh, well <laughs> are we able to by the simple focus of intent of uh uh wanting to see or Being interested or or focusing on some sort of manifestative event, uh, are we able to influence wormholes to do anything? Is that a possibility?
1: I don't know if we can get them to do anything, but I certainly believe it's possible to influence them. Uh, I think um, some of the work at the uh, Princeton Peer Lab has kind of proved that the human power of intent is fairly powerful, it can influence machinery, it can influence electronics. So it it's very probable it could also influence a wormhole. In fact, it could be that mediums initiate the wormhole opening uh, subconsciously as part of what they do. Right. This is something that we're we're looking at very seriously. Um, the other thing that's kind of interesting is, is that uh, these <clears throat> wormholes probably fall into several different kinds of categories uh... and probably go to several different kinds of destinations uh... including time including parallel universes including far off places in our own universe um, there could be advanced technologies capable of generating very specifically targeted wormholes to to make a a travel across our own you know universe our own galaxy what have you um, they would have to be a fairly high technological level a lot of people you know have thought but on the other hand, we may be on the crux of figuring out how to do this stuff, and, and the real you know, problem after that would be determining how to guide it to the specific point that you wish it to go to. Right. Uh, we have no clue about that, but we are starting to get some clues about what's going on when these things are generated. Um, so I would say it's probably a, a good chance that they could be generated artificially in our lifetime. We just probably couldn't direct them to where we wanted them to go. It would be like throwing dice.
2: Yeah. Um
1: It'd be like, you know, bullwinkle pulling a rabbit out of the hat type of thing, you know.
2: And getting a lion, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah, remember? It's complaining uh, about having to get a new hat, you know. So I mean that's kinda of where we're at. Um, yeah. but it certainly has a great deal of potential of not only in the aspect of the paranormal, but in physics in general. I mean, if we could prove there was an existence of a wormhole and prove Kip Thorne's theory of wormholes, I mean that would be a huge scientific discovery, and I'll guarantee you, science will get heavily involved in the study of, the paranormal. <laughs> of course, to, Yeah, something like funny. that happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, I, that's I, I, kind of our I, motivation behind following it as well. You know, is to get science involved.
2: I mean, I was kind of uh, uh, I was kind of surprised to hear you talk about the you know the wormhole and the oscillation and all and all of that because the. Um, uh, the prevailing thought that I've had these days, at least in regards to the UFO thing and in particular contact experiences, is that uh, you know I've said for a long time you know the the more attention that you seem to give this thing or or worry or stress or any of that, the more uh, that it seems to interact in in this really profound way. Not so much like a a bump in the night uh, thing. I'll
1: tell you something. Tell you something uh, else to try at your house, by hmm? the way. Get yourself one of those little plasma balls, like they
2: have it. Yeah, I got, I'm looking at one right now. Yeah,
1: <laughs> buy one, buy one, and run it, and watch what happens. Okay. Because I'm going to tell you something. That's that's an example of cold plasma, and you're you're generating cold plasma in that globe, which is also energy. It's the fourth state of matter. Now, <clears throat> orbs, real orbs, not dust orbs, but orbs that we have captured and measured are cold plasma. And they are a byproduct of this conduit opening up. Uh So it stands to reason that cold plasma would be related to paranormal activity. Now, I just had a friend of mine who lives in Germany who has a resident spirit, so to speak, that talks to her all the time through EVPs. Uh And uh, she had a lull lull period, a very long lull period where there was no activity in her home. And she asked me, she says, do you think a plasma ball would inject some energy into the air to kind of help it along. And I said, uh, I would say theoretically, yes. I said, but try it and let me know what happened. And sure enough, today she tried it. And sure enough, her friend came back and left her some messages. So uh, <laughs> anytime we artificially introduce energy into the environment, it does increase activity.
2: Huh. Well, I mean, yeah, I've got a, a very large one, actually. Um, That's good. The, uh, the larger the, uh, the better. Yeah, I mean yeah, I I'll run it tonight. What the hell? Um but as I was saying, the, the kind of the the prevailing theory that I've that I've thought about lately is that uh, uh our thought patterns uh you know, I, I look at it, you, mean, you mentioned a guitar, which is odd because that's how I kind of explain it. Uh, you know, having a, a delay pedal hooked up to a regular guitar and you hit a note and you get the ding, 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 ding. Yep. But you can change that amount. You know, you can change the amount of of uh, right. a feedback loop and all of that. And so I've kind of named it the feedback loop theory where, you know, essentially we have a thought of you know, X, and so something out there in the ether says X back, and so it just becomes this ping-pong effect back and forth until that oscillation reaches some kind of fever pitch, and then manifestation somehow happens, or like you in, in your case, you know, a wormhole uh, erupts uh, someplace, and you have some sort of manifestation happen. Um Exactly so I was right. just curious, like how does, you know, how does would human consciousness be able to affect uh, that sort of thing? Being as we know how it kind of can affect reality now, uh, and all, I wonder, like, frequency related. You know, it's all frequency right. related. Our, our, inside of our
1: uh, brain, there are thousands and thousands of electronic impulses, uh, waveforms, uh, pulses, all these electronic energy going off, and it's collectively enclosed. In our central nervous system, and so it also runs throughout our entire body. Well, when we die, that energy just doesn't cease to exist. We know from uh, Maxwell's Law of energy conservation uh, that it doesn't you can't create energy you you can't destroy energy. you can convert energy, but it never goes away. it just changes its identity or changes its form. Mm -hmm. Um, So you have all this energy left up from our um, life force, from our being alive. So when we die, that energy has to go somewhere. Now the the, uh, argument has always been, it just radiates out in all directions to infinity. But there's a significant amount of anecdotal evidence that tends to suggest that upon death we may keep the totality of ourselves, maintain our awareness, maintain our consciousness, and travel on as a being that's you know, pure energy, So, and it's all frequency-related. Now, to, to add some interesting information to this, we have been looking for um, brainwave patterns and background radiation in a haunted location, or a reportedly haunted location. The idea being that uh, beta waves in particular are associated with consciousness. When a person loses consciousness, their beta wave forms flatline. This is found a lot in uh, in uh, cases where people have been knocked unconscious or they are in deep, deep sleep between REM sleep where there's no brain wave. You know, there's no dreaming or no activity pretty much in the brain, okay. the uh, beta wave flatline. So we have started looking specifically for waveforms that resemble or mimic beta brainwaves. And we have found on several occasions waveforms that do that. Um So these are all interesting points that bear further study, but it kind of is telling us we're looking in the right direction for what we're doing because we're coming up with ideas to look for something, and then we're kind of finding it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So uh, it's kind of neat because we're, we're taking a whole bunch of evidence and we're shaking it up in a jar and then putting it together and saying, well, if this may be the case, then we should be able to see this. Now we have to figure out how we can measure this. So we, got, we go back into my basement. It glows green in the dark for a few days. And then we drag something out that we've put together, and we look for it, and we find it. And, and what we're doing isn't voodoo. I mean, we're using off-the-shelf stuff. We're, we're looking for a specific frequency with tools that are designed to look for those specific frequencies. Right. And uh, it's interesting when we get, what we're looking for based on the conclusions we've made by reviewing data. Nice. (laughs) It's called the scientific method.
2: Right. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Something sorely lacking the paranormal, I guess.
1: Yeah. Uh, So, so, uh, and that's another thing that my book does. We're kind of coming full circle here for a second. Yeah. At the end of my book, the very last chapter, the title of it is called The Scientific Method. And what the book does is it prepares the reader all the way through it So that when they get to the last chapter and they read the scientific method, it makes total and complete sense to them and they understand what it means. Hmm. And that's the goal of the whole book. That's the big goal of the whole book. The little goal is to familiarize people with the equipment and what they're measuring and that sort of thing. Um, So it's kind of a full circle type thing. When you get to the end, it tells you how to put all of it into place and how to utilize it, utilize the tools that the book gives you. To develop your own hypotheses and develop your own theories.
2: Right. Well, so it's kind of a neat thing. Let me ask you something. As far as your investigations have gone, the last time you were uh, with us, uh, with Jeremy and I on the show, you had talked about uh, an EVP uh, that you got in association with a time dilation, which you measured, uh, and then a I think it was a salt shaker slid across the table. That is what
1: led to the wormhole discovery. Right, that whole thing led to this whole. Actually, the discovery of Emergence EVP is what led to the whole discovery. But that was a turning point in which we actually measured effects of what we think now is a wormhole.
2: So, in the in in the uh, I guess <laughs> I guess in the ooh ah factor uh, of this portion of the show, uh, have you had? An experience while out uh, doing an investigation where you <clears throat> you capture where you record any sort of voice any sort of that what you could only ascribe to as two way communication, and what do you think the most profound one that you've had if you 've gotten any like that? Uh, what do you think the most profound ones are in what was communicated to you
1: I think uh we haven't really gotten two-way direct communication because we're really not doing that right now even though we have a setup and a device for doing it uh-huh. um, we've been kind of chasing this wormhole thing right now very specifically to map it out to map out all the environmental effects and these things are very transitory so uh... the direction finders very helpful because when they appear it you know and we're data logging the output of all these sensors and we also use a microphone as the fourth sensor, so there are three uh, detection coils and a microphone, so that it's very possible that we we will pick up EVPs not even just through the coils but also through the microphone because we're using a dynamic mic. Okay. But we have been picking up voices. In fact, right now I've got about <laughs> uh, I've got about four hours of uh, data that I have to review. From running, we have run the wormhole detector now on six cases. Hmm. And in each one of those cases, we have detected the signs and the data that we believe reinforces the wormhole theory. Um, what we got in the last episode was kind of interesting. We had activity in an attic, and we set the system up in the attic, and we noticed that we were getting a very similar signal in all three detection coils. However, there was one near a wall that was just way, way uh, higher amplitude than the others. And we could not get a triangulation fix on the point of emergence of the signal we were getting. Well, it turns out that on the other side of that wall was an abandoned ice house that we had no idea was there. So guess what? Now we have to go back, reset up the equipment in the abandoned ice house, and run it in there and see if we can find the point of emergence. But the attic was very, very active. I mean, we got several EVPs up there. And and uh, so far, we have not been attempting interactive EVP work. We've been okay. looking for, because the idea is, is once we refine the ability to locate the point of emergence, and we get really good at getting it down to within a few, you know, like one or two meters, then we can start, concentrating a lot of different experiments in that region once it appears and it only lasts for a brief period of time so you've got to have like everything ready to roll and you always go to the place where the most activity is reported because that's your best chance of getting it. Yeah,
2: literally get going fishing, in other words. Yeah, um,
1: you're going fishing to start with, but if you go to a place where the fish have, have bitten quite a bit before, you've got a better
2: you shot. you got a better, better shot, right. <laughs> so, so when you do an EVP session, you don't do it in the classic sense of what we all think of when we go, is there anybody here, can anybody hear my voice, yeah. blah, blah, blah. No, what,
1: what we will do is we will go in, we will wire a room, And we'll wire every room in the house, essentially. And, and, uh, you know, we we make a statement that, you know, the room is wired. If there's anything anybody wants to say to anybody, that they can say anything at any time, any message they want to get, and we leave. And we completely remove all human interaction from the building, from the house, whatever. Everyone goes outside. And then what we do is we periodically go back in to check the equipment, you know, uh, make sure everything's going, take different spot readings monitor some of the things. And then we go back out again. We do this for a couple of reasons. One, to ensure site security that no one comes in and tampers with anything. right. Number two, it completely removes the human interaction factor from it altogether. And when we go in, we do time checks audibly so that you know there's a person present. So anything else that's picked up when there's nobody present, we have to look at as potential evidence. Okay. Um, now, we have built a device that at some point down the road we will attempt to establish some type of communication with. Um after going through all the crazy junk that's out there on the market now that are making people lots of money that really essentially <laughs> doesn't doesn't prove anything other than there's a lot of audio on R F signals all around us, which we know that already, but right. um this device works a little bit differently in that since we have determined that E V P is EMF, this device uses EMF in the voice range as its communication medium. So, oh, okay, we actually and this stuff can be assembled with off-the-shelf items. Again, you don't have to spend money to some guy on the web that's selling you, you know, a used car from Idaho or whatever. You get on there and you get a a good decent microphone, like a <clears throat> a sure SM58, uh, a good nice dynamic microphone. You get a small two-channel mixer you get a little amplifier and a couple of speakers and you take speakers and you cut the cone out of one of them. And that's your transmitter antenna and you leave the speaker in the other one, or you put a headphone, you know, on in case, you know, you don't want the other speaker there and you broadcast what you're saying through the microphone, through the mixer, through the amp and out the speaker coil. You don't hear it, but it's radiating your voice in the EMF. And then you listen with the, uh, with another microphone at what may be coming back at you through your headphones. And we believe that if it's possible to establish two-way communication, that's going to be the best possible way to do it.
2: (laughs) That would creep me the hell out.
1: (laughs) Well, uh, that's of why we haven't done it yet. Uh, (laughs) We're not sure we want to know the answer, but uh, uh, we definitely have the ways and means of doing it. We just, to be real honest with you, our research schedule has had all this other stuff on its plate. Right. And we haven't gotten around to doing that yet. I mean, we're still documenting the fact that EMF and EVP are the same because the more data that we collect that shows that, the more people will believe that it's so. Right. And we're getting reports from other investigating groups who are duplicating the EVP-EMF experiment, and they are getting the same findings that we got. So we're starting to cautiously go out on that limb and say, yes, EVP is EMF. Right. Even though we've been suspecting it for quite a while, and I've been saying that's what I think it is, we're pretty certain now, just based on other people repeating our work and getting the same thing, that it's that's pretty much what it is.
2: Yeah. Um, is there? A, let Let's go through because I, I just want to let's do a public service thing here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> let, let Let Let's run Let's run that list of a couple things here, uh, uh, and we'll call this part of the show "crap or no crap." Uh, Frank's box. Crap. Uh, K two meter. Crap. Really? Why so? Uh, I have it picks, picks up, up everything. That, you know, <laughs> it picks pick, it picks up everything. Yeah, radios, cell
1: phones. It picks up any EMF in the environment. It picks it up. So, what good is it if it can't differentiate from a sixty cycle waveform, a person on a cell phone, the kid on a walkie talkie down the block, or somebody's wireless
2: telephone? Right. How did that ever get to be such a big thing? I mean, that's like fair uh, now on
1: television. Yeah. What boldest thing was it being used as an electronic Ouija board?
2: Yeah, that's exactly what it's used for, too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um,
1: and, uh, in fact, a lot of people use a lot of different equipment as electronic Ouija boards. Um, in spite of the fact that this stuff is meaningless, isn't acceptable as evidence, doesn't mean anything, can be easily duplicated, can be easily manipulated, people think, swear up in God, that they're dealing with a ghost. Right. And it just simply isn't so. Um, uh, yeah,
2: yeah, random EMF detectives. Be,
1: you know, yeah. it could be a ghost, but if it could also be a hundred other things… How do you differentiate between which of those
2: hundred things it is? That's why it's it's junk data. Yeah. Um...
1: Same thing with Frank's box. Frank's box may very well be talking with the dead, but it could also be talking with the kid down the street on a walkie-talkie. It could just be (laughs) randomly picking up, you know, phonetic vowels from the radio. And if uh, ghosts talk on an AM radio, why don't we hear them on our radio on our way to work in the morning? You
2: know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. this is so, true. So, I
1: mean, it, there's so yeah. many things it can be and no methodology in place to eliminate those things that aren't paranormal. That's why it's junk.
2: Well, what is the uh, – I, and I don't even know what this thing is called because, frankly, I don't think they tell us. But I hate to bring up a sore subject for us both, but Ghost Adventures, guys. Um, the Ovulus. Uh, uh, is that what the that's puck. called? The it's. Well, it, uh, it it talks. Uh, it's got yeah. goggles and all. what is that called again?
1: Yeah, it's called the ovulus. Do you know why it talks? No. Because the man who made it programmed the chip with ten thousand words that he chose. Okay. And that chip is triggered by environmental changes of various degrees. I mean, if a degree changes in the temperature, if the atmospheric pressure drops a point, if there's EMF from your wall socket, they'll all trigger a word.
2: It'll flip. But word. the words,
1: okay. but the words are carefully chosen by the designer. I mean, like you don't have Potawatomi in there. You don't have like you know uh, uh, the USSR. You don't have anti-disestablishmentarianism. They're very carefully crafted words that are <laughs> meaningful to paranormal investigators that are put into that vocabulary. So it's kind of like taking a bunch of words and writing them on pieces of paper, shaking it all up, and randomly pulling one out. And this one says hurt. Oh, my God. It's a person who died here and they're hurting. You know what I'm right. saying? I yeah, think the, sure. words, the words kind of can be in context no matter what the situation. So, of course, you're always going to get a hit. Huh. And that's why he is almost, you know, he's made several million dollars probably selling these devices now off of Gullible public. And he clearly states on his website, novelty item only. No claims are made to this device. <laughs> communicates. You know, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Because he can be right. sued.
2: <laughs> right. Well, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh... So uh, uh,
1: he could go to jail for false advertisement. So, I mean, he sits there and tells you right off the bat that this is just a gadget. It's a toy. It doesn't really talk to the dead, and people buy it and swear they're talking to the dead. So, I mean, you know, what can you do? Uh, in my book, I go over these devices. I explain exactly how they work. You know, why I would be surprised if you didn't get a meaningful word from them and uh, exactly what's going on with them and why they're no good as evidence because, like I say, there's a thousand different sources possible and no way to differentiate between them.
2: Wow. Um, I mean, in the sense of, uh, well, when we had spoken through email last time, I was really surprised that to do EVP work... uh, through your methodology doesn't take a great deal of money. It sure as hell doesn't take as much money as I assumed that it was going to uh, yeah. to actually get yeah. you know the short mic and and, and pop and, the dive from the mountain you know and get
1: really good clear EVP. Oh yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, I mean, really good
1: ones. The trick is in the microphone. You've got to have an external dynamic microphone, and then it doesn't matter what you record it on because the microphone is the key. The, the Sure SM58 microphone just happens to be one of the most sensitive microphones to EMF on the market, and mm-hmm. and it works great.
2: And is I mean, that the one you mi- is is that the one you told me to pull the uh, the the actual cone out of uh, yeah, so that you, it's you, left with the coil alone?
1: Yeah, I mean you can you can do that. I mean I hate to see someone ruin a perfectly good Shure microphone doing that. So I would recommend going to Radio Shack and getting that nine dollar microphone that they have right. and doing it to that. Uh, but yeah, it works. It works. The difference is, for some reason, the diaphragm tends to make them crisper when it's kept in place because it guides the coil. It keeps the coil from rubbing against the magnets. Okay. So it, it's more of a suspension issue than anything else. But we have found that even without the diaphragm, you still pick up EVPs. So
2: now, now I mean, let me ask you something. With that, uh, well, two questions. Number one, does that mean that you don't have to worry about? Uh, The audibles at all when you're doing EVPs, like say you go to Gettysburg and you know how it is up there. Sometimes it's crowded with morons and they're, you know, they're little things shouting out every place. Well, Uh, that's
1: why we do what we do. When we go for EVPs, we set up our equipment, we make a statement, we leave
2: and remove it. There's nothing
1: but dead silence going on there. The other thing we do is we do a uh, two microphone recording. We do a stereo recording Um, and we pan one channel full left and we put the dynamic mic on that. And then we pan the other channel full right, and we put a, con- a like a studio condenser or a lab quality condenser mic on the right, so that only the condenser mic feeds the right, only the dynamic feeds the left. And that way we can compare the two uh, waveforms in the file when we open it up. And you can just look at it as you go down, and you can see an EVP when it appears.
2: Oh wow, okay.
1: Um, so you don't have to sit there and listen to the whole damn tape for hours and hours or the whole the whole digital recording for hours and hours. You just scan down the tape or scan down the wave file display on your editing software. Yeah. And the condenser mic will have a noise floor signal, and so will the dynamic. And then you'll look, and there'll be some really weird stuff on the dynamic and nothing up on
2: the condenser, and you'll know you have an EVP. Well, what else do you get? I mean, using that, what's the negative? Um, Because there's got to be some. Yeah, you get an AVP.
1: And that's in which you will get a signal in both the condenser mic and the dynamic mic, and someone may even hear it. And that's because it's an audible voice Uh phenomenon. It is an audible voice with no apparent source. And uh, that's an interesting phenomenon because it means that there has to be sufficient mass to move air, which means there's some kind of partial manifestation or there's someone standing literally at the edge of that wormhole yelling into the room or speaking into the room. Oh yeah. You know, so there there's, um, and that's a part of it, uh, that you do see on TV sometimes that may or may not be true because we don't know what's going on off camera. Right. But they may be actually hearing a, a, an audible voice phenomena when everyone hears it in the audience and it's picked up by the cameras and it's picked up by everybody. And, Most of the time, it isn't voices, it's noises. For example, this this same attic that we went back to, we've been there several times. The first time we were there, we had uh, microphones set up into the room. And at one point during the night, it sounded exactly like someone ransacked the room, and there was no one up there. (laughs) And you couldn't hear anything downstairs. But boy, did we record it. I mean, we recorded all this stuff, and it was in both the condenser mic and the dynamic mic, and everything was in place when we went up there to take it down. Another interesting, another interesting anecdote, this is pretty funny, too. When we went back with the wormhole detector, we were, we were setting up our recording setup, which is the two-mic setup, the mixer, and you know, a recorder. Well, John, my, uh, my co-director, and, and I were setting up – I was setting up the wormhole device. He was setting up the recording equipment, and he took the coil, and he wrapped the mic coil in a traveler coil. And if you're a musician, you know what a traveler coil is. It's So when you take the mic off the mic stand and run with it across the stage, it doesn't tangle up and trip you and throw you on your back, right. uh, which can be embarrassing in front of a live audience. But anyway, there was a traveler coil on the floor just because it's easier to manage the cable that way. We had cameras set up, but we didn't have a camera on the recording equipment. We had a camera on the room in general, basically looking straight at the wormhole detector. Okay. So when we come back to tear down the equipment, the mic cable for the dynamic microphone, no, it was for the capacitor microphone, the condenser mic, was wrapped about, 10 or 12 times around the chair leg that it was sitting on. Now, this chair was against the wall, so it either had to be pulled out and lifted up or they had to unplug the microphone and wrap it numerous times and entangle it almost around that leg and then plug it back in. Well, When we we reviewed the audio, of course, that's what happened. The the microphone was unplugged and then it plugged back in. I mean, you could audibly see where the sound went dead and then it came back again. So something unplugged the mic cable, wrapped it around the leg numerous times, and plugged it back in. And, of course, it was off camera. (sighs) But if a a person would have been there doing it, we would have seen the person. But there was no person there. So something unplugged the mic cable and wrapped the was cut. So when we saw this, it was funny. We had two new people on our team that we were training. It was, you know, two women, and they, like, freaked out. Oh, my God, this is incredible. And John just goes, "Yeah, it happens to us all the time. (laughs) It was no no big deal because here's the thing. It was an interesting occurrence. It was a personal experience, Mm -hmm. but there was no documentation of it other than personal experience, so it was useless
2: scientifically.
1: But it was kinda neat, you know. <laughs> well it were, sounds
2: to me like you better get a camera on your equipment next time too. I mean, well
1: believe me, we're <laughs> next time we're putting cameras in all directions to cover everything because this is the second time we've had something like that happen and mm. we just didn't have anything on it to catch it. And uh that's how this stuff see, this stuff acts with intelligence. It really does. Which is a does it,
2: thing does it seem not to want to be caught or to be seen?
1: It it has a certain trickster mentality about it. Right. And uh, it's like it's messing with you, you know? And I'm sure you can verify that from your own experiences. It's like (laughs) if you have an area uncovered, well, that's where it's going to do something, where you can't record it, you know, or you're not going to pick it up. So it's going to have tantalizing clues, and you're going to get bits and pieces of evidence, but to actually get a a visual or a videotape of something like that happening, it just doesn't happen. (laughs) That's why when I watch Ghost Adventures, I mean, seriously. I mean, that's probably one of the best shows for CGI-generated video that has ever been made because nobody gets video like they get. Nobody. And they get it everywhere they go. Everywhere they go, they get some ghost shadow walking across the floor. You know, it's like, come
2: on. (laughs) Well, you know what? One could argue that if marginality is a factor in this, oh, well... I need sor more uh, let me let me ask you something from from just a a personal standpoint when I lived in a condominium uh we used to have uh, uh something seen in the hallway uh by my wife, me, my son. People who would come to the house would see uh either a dark shape move mm-hmm. into the hallway and into the bathroom uh mm-hmm. Or on several occasions, my wife actually saw a figure of a person. She couldn't tell if it was male or female, but it was very dark.
1: Totally Uh, black, right? um, Like it absorbed light instead of reflecting. Yeah, she
2: said it looked like darkness, um, which was pretty. But she said there were times where that darkness was transparent at times. Uh It was almost like a light shadow. Um, Now, we saw that a lot in the hallway by a bathroom. In yeah. this current house that we've bought, we see things in a hallway by a bathroom.
1: That's right, because ghosts have to take a crap, man.
2: Well, <laughs> you know, and that's the amusing answer, but I want to know what the fuck's the real answer.
1: Well, <laughs> let me mean, tell you, amazingly, you have stumbled upon a very common piece of knowledge to anyone that's been doing this for years and years and years, is There tends to be more activity near bathrooms. There also tends to be more activity near kitchens as well. Uh, But we think we know why that is. We think that's because of the running water situation, because running water generates electric currents. You can actually measure those currents if you use... You know the amp meters that are clamp-on amp meters? Okay. Next time you're around your house and there's a pipe that you can get to that's got water running through it, clamp an amp meter on it and measure the voltage. You'll be surprised.
2: Really? Okay.
1: Yeah, you may see as high as 90 volts on it, and that's just from the magnetic field being generated by the water flowing through that pipe. If you think about it, electricity does the same thing for a wire. It flows through the wire, but the current is actually measured on what's called the skin effect. The The area outside around the perimeter of the wire is where all the current is, is, is carried. That's why the bigger the wire, the more current it can carry because it has a bigger uh, circumference for Cir- the area, electricity right. to run across. Same thing with a pipe. The bigger the pipe you get, the stronger the uh, electricity will be from the magnetic field because it will be a more powerful magnetic field throwing, flowing through it, particularly if it's a faster flow rate. So, yeah, and and we have had people that, you know, had experiences by their washing machines, and it was because we went down there, and, we, and there was like 100 volts coming off the plumbing going to the to the uh, washing machine, and it was giving off EMF. And it was given off a very low frequency EMF based on the uh the dynamics of the water flowing through it. So there's a lot of things in the environment that may cause someone to have altered perceptions that isn't paranormal at all. Right. Um which these are also things I go into in the book that have to be eliminated from the mix before you can reach a conclusion as to what you've encountered. So because um, I do a whole thing on kind of like debunking, like looking for the answer in the real world to what's going on before you jump to the conclusion that it's something out of this world, you
2: know, so so in the case it's water. of water, water is a generating it's, thing. And so does that mean that we're looking, I mean, genuinely, I mean, I'm not in the hallway when I see this, usually I'm in the living room and I'm looking down the hallway. Uh, so in that case, uh, I mean, what are we talking about as far as electricity goes? Is that an attractant to phenomena? No, I, don't think
1: I don't think it's an attractant. I think it's a facilitator and a feeder. I think what it does is it lends them additional energy uh, in order to manifest, in order to manifest in a certain way. For example, the energy may be there but not visible, but the additional energy may allow it to, without harming its content, to manipulate that energy into creating a projection. Or in the case of these dark things that you see, I have another theory that they may be something I call dark biomatter, where they may be something completely different and not a ghost or anything like that at all. It may actually be a creature that is made up of dark biomatter instead of normal visible biomatter that we're made up of. Uh, And there's a lot of scientific research being done right now on bio-dark matter, believe it or not.
2: Uh, Great. uh, Something else to worry about. (laughs) Uh. (laughs)
1: Um, But, you know, who knows what the source of whatever this is is. But the theory is is that it absorbs light instead of reflects it. Like normal matter reflects light. Like we see each other because we reflect light. Um, and some could arguably say we generate light to a certain degree, certainly in the IR spectrum from
0: our heat. Mm-hmm.
1: But uh, there is quite a bit of research being done right now because there is a belief since di- there has been several discoveries that are leading biologists, in particular, to believe that there is such a thing as dark biomatter. And uh, there's, like I say, there's a lot of stuff going on. What I mean, are those discoveries?
0: It-
2: um,
1: at a at a microscopic scale, uh, like at uh, molecular and atomic scale, they have found particle activity that leads them to believe there's an influence of dark biomatter involved, particularly in DNA research. Just Google it sometime. I mean, it's it's another thing that I read a little bit about, but. You know, I'm kind of focused in a different direction. Wait, couldn't you have so said just, go-
0: just Google it sometime <laughs> for anything that we've asked? <laughs> yeah, you probably then we wouldn't have a I, show if we just Google. Yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm just saying, I, I don't
1: know enough about the specifics of the research to be able to sit here and talk about it in too much detail. I've read a couple of reports. I've had some discussions with a couple of people who are actually doing research. Um, this one guy wrote a paper. Uh, he actually has a Ph.D., i his name is Dr. Philip Benjamin. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there, it's, it's funny because a lot of the things that, at least the fundamental things that we are finding surrounding what we're doing, are starting to be looked at from a different context by the scientific community, which was another reason why I said, yeah, the scientific community is getting involved in it, for the most part, kind of indirectly. Um, mm-hmm. And he recently wrote a paper about, Dark biomatter, and it was, it was pretty interesting. And you could probably find that paper online, because um, okay. I know Google it got it. published. Yeah, I know it got published. His name? Did you get his name, Philip Benjamin?
2: Mm-hmm. Philip Benjamin.
1: Okay. Yeah. Sometime when you got time, just just Google it. And he he wrote a paper about it that was pretty fascinating. And it was down at the the DNA level. I mean, what what they were talking about. And uh, I looked at that and I said, Oh, shadow people. We're going to discover scientifically what shadow people are.
2: I mean, I mean, do you still think, Dave, that a lot of this stuff is still considered taboo by science? Like, they're not—you know—they're definitely not going to go out, you know, in the in the community itself and talk about this sort of thing. Yeah, but
1: only openly. And I'll tell you, it's changing. And I'll tell you why it's changing. There's a lot of young physicists out there, Mm -hmm. and there are people who are young physicists who, you know, watch ghost hunters just like everyone else does, and they think about it from a physicist's point of view. And while they're smart enough to not go out on the limb in their academia with it yet, they do entertain thoughts about it, and they do have ideas about it, and they are sharing those ideas and thoughts now, where before they did not. so what do you do,
0: what do, you do in a the, the um, think tank setting? I mean, do you map? out well, a plan, an ultimate goal?
1: No, pretty much what
0: we do is is we talk about physics.
1: It's called theoretical physics, and that's exactly what we talk about. We talk about everything from wormholes to holographic universes to, I mean, you name it. If it has something to do with quantum mechanics or astrophysics or physics, it gets discussed in there at one time or another. But the interesting thing, we think we have a mole in there, and I'll tell you why. We were talking about oh four or five different things um, over the past probably six months, and uh, we theorized about several different things. In fact, two of the members in here actually wrote a theory about the megaverse, and he's probably going to get it published in Wikipedia uh, because it's all of a sudden there's all this theories coming out now from physics about the megaverse. And that's just one of about seven or eight topics that we discussed in great detail in this room and each one of them have either come out with the theory being put out there by some scientist somewhere at some university or someplace like uh, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN or uh, Fermilab comes up with finding this particle that we have speculated about it being existent and how to look for it and what the rotation is or the frequency would be of it, and suddenly it's discovered. So it's <laughs> kind of neat. because we've had like this deja vu thing going on now for the past, probably past month and a half where uh, we keep putting these posts in there because we find the article where something's discovered and we put it in there. Gee, funny, we were just bashing this with a dead horse for the last, you know, six weeks or whatever. But uh, it's very interesting because everybody, not everybody in there is a physicist, like a recognized, educated physicist. There are a lot of people in there that are physicists as a hobby, but they're incredibly bright and they're incredibly good at what they do. And the people that are physicists that are in there, we all talk to each other like there's no difference between anyone in there. Mm. And we're all talking to each other on the same level and we're all expanding upon each other's theories and fleshing them out as a group effort. And that's what I mean by a think tank. And I even discuss some of the paranormal stuff that I do in there. And uh, they come up with all kinds of ideas. And uh OG What You Found, reinforces uh, – my. there's one guy in there who wrote a paper. It's called Origins. It's actually a six-part paper. It's huge. And uh, there is a part of it in there that was inspired by some of my work in the paranormal and some of my discoveries that helped flesh out some of his theories. So it's like a, a two-way street. We go in there and we all flesh each other's stuff out from different points of view. So it's a great place to work kinks out of a theory or to design experiments or – what to look for because we all put input into it, uh-huh. and it's very varied and very thorough in its in its nature.
0: You had so mentioned cool uh, that your book um, also deals in things uh, that might be able to help ufologists and bigfoot researchers. What's something in there that would help a bigfoot researcher?
1: Well, if you could, uh, if you were out in the woods where bigfoot has been seen recently, and you know bigfoot has been witnessed by numerous people on several occasions, you would want to be looking for EMF because emerging EMF would tell you that there's a portal opening up and you'd want to be near that portal if Bigfoot might be coming through it. So there are, uh, you would want to be monitoring gamma radiation. You would want to be monitoring ion counts, you know. You could even just use handheld battery-operated equipment just to give yourself a heads up, something was going on. You wouldn't need to know what the frequency was. You just need to know it was there to start looking. uh Chances are if you 're out in the middle of the woods, you 're not going to be reading sixty cycles from any kind of power source. So if hmm. you get an e m f uh, waveform that it is probably not being created by anything natural out in the middle of the woods unless there's some kind of electronic beast around.
0: huh Well, see so, if you uh-huh. could do that, then you could actually prove that Bigfoot is not just a natural you know, cryptozoological creature. Exactly. Take Except... it out the other
1: direction if you're studying UFOs. And you're in a place yeah. that's very active with UFOs. So you go out there and you take an EMF survey meter with you. And you're out there and there's no power around or there's no high-tension wires and you're standing around on a highway and there's nothing around. Like, say, you're in Pine Bush or someplace like that, Pine Bush, New York. Hudson Valley, no power lines around, and all of a sudden, you know, your meter goes wackadoo off the wall. I'd be looking at the sky at that point. You know, chances are and I'm gonna tell you an interesting story. When I was very young, I was probably twelve years old. We were sitting in our house in South Florida, I was living in Delray Beach, a little community called Country Club Acres, and uh we're watching TV and all of a sudden the TV went wacko. I mean it was like Somebody took a magnet and was running across the face of the screen. I mean, the picture was just twisting all around. It was whacking all out and everything. And it lasted for probably five minutes, and then it went away. And then suddenly there was a frantic knocking on our front door. And uh, it was the lady across the street, and now this woman was a banker. So she was sane. I mean, she wasn't abnormal or known to go ranting or drink heavily or anything like that. And she asked us if we were okay, and we were like, yeah, why? And she goes, there was a UFO over your house. <laughs> and I'm like, what What do you mean? And she's like, it was like over your roof. It was hovering above your house. And I'm like, well, how big was it? She said it was about 50 or 60 feet across. She said it didn't cover your, your – it, it actually didn't cover the whole house, but it almost covered the whole length of the house. So we had a ranch-type house, you know? And it was on a hundred foot lot, so this thing was like floating right above our house. And I said, Well hi, high, high my mother actually said this wasn't me, I was twelve years old. I was just like sitting there with my jaw hitting the floor, but um my mother said, Well how high above the roof was it? And she said, Maybe thirty or forty feet.
2: Oh my god.
1: <laughs> and I'm thinking this is why the T V tore up. There was an electromagnetic disturbance over the house which blocked the T which was manipulating the T V signal probably a byproduct of the propulsion system or whatever. Um, but, but we didn't even know it. And all I kept thinking as a 12-year-old kid was, damn it, I didn't get out there and see it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so after that, every time the TV tore up, I ran <laughs> outside.
2: <laughs> What's <laughs> so wrong course, with I, David? <laughs>
1: yeah, I, Yeah. I, I never, of course, saw one again there. I, I did see one uh, in my senior year of high school when we were at football practice one night, but the whole damn team saw it. So, Hmm. Um, but, I mean, I have had several encounters with UFOs, and I will say that uh, I was on a military aircraft when I was in the military, and we got buzzed by a UFO very close, close enough to photograph it. And, uh, really? It disc. Yeah, it was a disc. It's very clear. I got three shots of it with a 35-millimeter, and uh, it passed us. It was in straight-level and flight, and uh, the only thing that I noticed was that the pilot lost his auto nav while it passed us. In other words, all of his auto nav instrumentation went nuts for a few minutes. And then everything righted itself once it passed. And the pilot Hmm. basically said, you know, we didn't see anything.
2: (laughs) Uh, Well, no, of course not. Where did the photo Uh, go? (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. What happened to the
1: photo? I still have have
2: them. Oh, my God, can I see it, please?
1: Yeah, I'll I'll email them to you. Oh, excellent. There's three photographs. They're old. They were scanned, so, you know, they excellent. were scanned from the original photos because the original photos have long since deteriorated, but, I mean, this took place in the 70s, early 70s.
0: When you saw this, did you think of technology or did you think of something else? No, I
1: immediately figured it was uh, something else. I was in the Air Force. Hmm.
0: What did you think it was? I mean, uh, technology, alien technology. I mean, did you think aliens or did you think...
1: Yeah, I The I was paranormal
0: pretty... phenomena or something
1: else? Uh, no, I was pretty sure it was alien technology.
0: Are you now? Are you still sure?
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Don't uh, get me started on UFOs. Cause I could spend all night talking about UFOs. Oh,
2: really? Well, that that bears another repeat guest spot here.
0: So they, You are the returning yeah, champion. I, that's right.
1: <laughs> <laughs> when, when, when I began doing paranormal research, I researched everything. It was only when it got to the point that I realized that I could no longer keep constant or keep confident in all of them at once that I had to select one and go in that direction. But my original interest in the paranormal was across the board. I mean I was into every aspect of it. Uh particularly growing up. Uh when I would read you know, I, I grew up reading Fate magazine. And uh uh I read just about every book that, you know, Arthur Arthur Ford wrote. Every book that any paranormal author ever wrote, I read it. So I was into like frogs raining from heaven. I was into digging coal out of a mine that was you know 60 million years old and finding a live frog in the center of it. You know all those weird things that are documented over history. I was into all of it. Um, I read everything about Edgar Casey. You know read all of his books, all the books about him. You know I was into every aspect of it. But it became the knowledge base required to do it all became so massive. And before computers were even evident, I reached a point where I was so saturated that I had to say, I can't do this anymore. I've got to select something that I, I'm going to follow and I'm going to pour my resources into that. And that's when I turned into the haunting thing because I was having a lot of reoccurring experiences with uh, what I would call abnormal Environmental differentials.
0: <laughs> well, you've heard our show. Uh, you know our take on this stuff. Does it resonate with you, or do you think that everything is compartmentalized? This is aliens. This is Bigfoot. This is shadow people. This well, is I can tell
1: people? you. I can tell you about. Uh, I'll tell you a fascinating yeah. story, and then I'll let you decide what I think. I have a real good friend. He's dead now, but he was not that old. He died of cancer, but he uh, was about six years older than I am I and I'm fifty-six, but uh he got his doctorate in materials engineering. What he got his what his thesis was on and what he designed was he designed a material, a composite material that was designed for a rocket nozzle for the Aurora project, the Air Force's space plane. Uh, he designed the material that they made the rocket nozzle out of. Now, this material had to be able to endure the heat of the surface of the sun. Okay? Now, you might ask, how did he create this material? I'll tell you how he created it. <laughs> a guy in a black suit and sunglasses came into his class, handed him a sheet of paper with all the formulas on it, and he says, this is what your thesis is going to be on, and he left. <sighs> And he created the material from the formula on the piece of paper. What? And he got credit for creating the material. And yet, clearly, he did not create it.
2: (laughs) Uh, Okay, so did anybody else see this man come into the room? I mean...
1: Oh, this stuff happens all the time in colleges and universities across the nation. And it happens to... This guy was from India... He was an American citizen, but he was high-born in India. He was a Brahma, of the Brahma class. But uh, he had been at the university for many, many years, and they finally shamed him into getting his doctorate, and he got it. And how he got it was by inventing this material that he didn't invent, but he got credit as the inventor. But he swore up and down to me. He said, here's the piece of paper. And it was just a plain white piece of paper, and it was, you know, word processing, you know, as far as it was some computer, you know, inkjet printout. Yeah, uh,
2: typewritten, not you know, handwritten or anything.
1: Right. It was the entire entire formula, and it was very complex, and he said, I've never seen anything like this before in my life, but it works. This is it. We made it. So what happened to the lab? Aurora? Well, what word? do you think? <laughs> Any word on that? <laughs> Aurora's probably been flying for 20
2: years now. Yeah. Yeah. 20 uh, years now. Yeah, well, that makes sense. I'd say at least 18, yeah.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, he did this. Uh, when was this? This was, Well, I've been in New Jersey 10 years, and, I yeah, I'd say probably about 20. I'd say 20 years ago he delivered the material. So probably about 18 years, you're probably right. It's probably probably been in operation about 18 years, because it would probably take it two years of development to finish out the propulsion
0: was what you looked at on that paper comprehensible to you or was it beyond
1: um I'm not really a materials engineer. I mean the formulas I recognized as formulas, but there were also symbols representing materials and and composites and and atomic structures and and uh bits and pieces of it I understood, but I didn't understand the whole formula because obviously I'm not a materials engineer. There was stuff on there that was, you know, Chinese to me. So hmm. um but I think it's fascinating that they have um, one of the byproducts of the uh, uh, Fermilab experimentation with the accelerator at the Fermilab, with the collider they have there, is they created transparent aluminum. So I don't all know. these things, all these things that we are associating with science fiction, and they're all starting to come true.
0: Well, I'll tell you what I find interesting from that CERN collider is. Uh, The latest image I saw of particles colliding um, looked an awful lot like the imagery you see uh, heading into a shroom trip. Yep. (laughs) Uh, Anyone want to explain that to me?
1: It's very graphic. Well, you're seeing a release of um, a large amount of energy scalar-wise based on you're looking at a a subatomic particle collision that's creating a very visual stimulation, so that gives you the idea of the degree of the level of energy being released. And, of course, that energy is going to manifest by altering the environment dramatically. You're actually instantaneously ionizing millions of of atoms when that collision occurs, and it's leaving a very graphic display, light show.
0: Well, I guess maybe at this point, uh, we'll just give you an option to come back and talk about UFOs or talk to us for another two hours uh, right now. <laughs> these are these are your only options.
2: <laughs> now, we got to have you well, back on to talk about UFOs. I mean, come on. that's. Well,
1: I can go back and talk about, you know, the little that I know about it, you know. Oh, I, I think there's a, a lot
2: more there, Roundtree, <laughs> that you're not telling us.
1: I can <laughs> take it to a point in that I would have to say, you know i could take it to a point i can i i could put a lot more into it i just have to throw it out like it's a supposition that's all
2: <laughs> well that's okay god damn that's all we do around here i mean yeah uh,
1: but uh-huh. i mean you know i i have had some experiences in the air force that uh have led me to believe that there's a whole lot more going on for example the the flying triangles yeah those are not alien devices at all
2: yeah, we've supposed so, that on this show. those yeah, are,
1: those, those are our devices, um, and I've had confirmation that there are devices from several people who would know. So wow, okay. Uh, um, and and if you'll notice, those things never fly fast.
2: Ten, ten knots. Most reports, I think, yeah,
1: they're always just kind of loping along up there. So yeah, yeah. Um, but there's a reason for that. They're they're a different sort of thing. You know, they're basically. Uh, they are designed to be surveillance type uh, vehicles so huh. Huh.
0: well then you'd think they wouldn't get caught oh
1: I, I they do things on purpose nothing when you see something it's because they don't care if you see it
2: well yeah because i what mean happens, what
1: happens when people see these things Do they say oh hey there's an air force uh, whatever flying platform no they say alien no, they and say that's the the ufo <laughs>
2: right, right. Well, uh, well, and this is this is exactly it. I mean, and this is the discussion I'd like to have with you next time, which is, uh, you know, pre- pretty much what I had said to some people on a mailing list I'm on is that, uh, you know, the the extraterrestrial hypothesis for UFOs to me is, I mean, we can't take it off the table. I'll put it to you that way. Oh In no, there is right?
1: technology, for example, our stealth technology, mm-hmm. our ste- stealth technology just kind of appeared.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, there is there is weird stuff like that that I can say. Okay, there are. I mean, well, we had Travis Walton on the show. Uh, yeah, I some, mean, one sometime. day
1: we did not have stealth material, and then suddenly the next day we did. You know?
2: Yeah. Uh, and, I, I don't. Uh, I don't doubt that there's a potential out there for the ETH to be a viable theory, and it can't well, be there, with the, there is a transfer of technology that has well, occurred.
0: Well, wait a second. Uh, how, would we know, how would we know that that happened with stealth technology? Because it would be secret until such time that it isn't secret. So it well, would appear to us that it just showed up overnight. You have,
1: you have to look at the technology that came out of the Skunk Works and when it came out. The Skunk Works was the highest level of our technology for aircraft. Highest level. Anything that came out of the Skunk Works was top technology when it rolled off the floor. All right? The uh-huh. SR-71... Rolled off the floor in 1961 and was announced in 1964 by President Lyndon Johnson. So it had been operating for some time once it was announced. Uh, the next thing that rolled out of the Skunk Works, uh, besides the U2, which was before that, but the next thing that rolled out was the SR, or not the SR, the um, the F117 stealth fighter. And, of course, that was tested at Groom Lake Air Force Base in Nevada, which, of course, is Area 51. That was the test bed for that, and the B-2 stealth bomber was also tested, test-operated there. I mean, that's where we test our secret aircraft before they become known to the public, and that's where they operate out of. Um, But there was a big gap from the SR-71, which was state-of-the-art in 1963, to the... F one seventeen A stealth fighter. There's a huge difference. And there's only a roughly about a fourteen year span between the two. I mean hmm. the F one seventeen A was operational long before the public ever knew about it. And the only reason the public knew about it was Panama. Yeah.
0: Hmm. Well maybe they we'll have to have that. you back to convince us of the of the ETH and the technology transfer because I don't actually subscribe to that myself. Uh, I'd be interested to see what Stan Friedman would have to say about that since uh, he is both an ETH proponent and has worked on uh, secret projects, you know, in terms of just something appearing to show up overnight. You know. did,
1: did you guys catch the news conference of those ex- Air Force officers about uh, the uh, UFOs that were um, shutting down the nuclear missiles in the silos?
2: I didn't catch the whole thing, no. But, I i mean, we've met Robert Solis before and talked to him. Yeah. I mean, there's there's a
1: lot of people who know about that and won't come forward and talk about
2: it. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, I can. I, Cause that's, <laughs> a
1: serious, that's like a serious, like, breach of national security.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, though, I mean, I mean God, I can't. And it I, happened, happened, and it, I can't it, help it myself. Happened,
1: <laughs> yeah, it has <laughs> happened at some pretty critical times.
2: Like, oh, oh yeah, I don't doubt it. Uh, you, you know, know I like mean the
1: my the missile prices that happened even so.
2: Yeah, my biggest problem with uh with, with the the current state ufologically of 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 the ETH theory is that here we are 60 plus years into uh at least the grassroots end of looking at this and uh you know, people saying nuts and bolts and yet we're still missing that elusive nut or bolt which I think lends itself more to your wormholes and your think, manifestations. Yeah, think about this, though, you know. Think mm-hmm. about
1: this. If you want to hide something, where do you hide it? You hide it in plain view. Mm-hmm. The stuff's all around us. The technology's all around us. Yeah. You can say it was created by the space program. You can mm-hmm. say it was created by many different things, but there are – if you examine aspects of technology – you are going to find that there are gaps in natural development of certain technologies. Hmm. Unexplainable gaps. Undocumentable gaps. A leap from one level of technology to another. You gotta look for it, but it's definitely there.
2: You know <laughs> I was just telling medical, my wife. medical
1: technology. Medical technology specifically has a lot of that. Yeah. Medical technology has a lot of that. Yeah. Like uh, magnetic resonance imaging, that, that developed overnight.
2: Yeah, well, I, you know what? It's odd that you should mention that because I have a brother-in-law who is a medical technician. And, uh, well, he's head of his department for medical technician. He's gone the whole gambit from the ladder bottom rung up. Yeah. And, uh, and he has said to me a couple of times that this stuff has taken quantum leaps just since he's been in yeah. that field. He said, I oh, can't yeah. believe what we're looking at as compared to what we had 15 yeah. years ago. Um, yeah. you know, and and I gotta say, uh, uh, I, I just bought one of the new uh, well, iPhone, but it's just the, uh, the iPod Touch. Uh, and, and I'm talking to my wife, and I said, you know, what was it? We were in the condo, we were newly married, we were watching Star Trek Next Generation, and everybody's walking around with these little things called pads, mm-hmm. and now. We have now them. We got them. Yeah. Now we got I mean, them. it's just, it's beyond bizarre. I mean, I don't and know. At, Again, I can't contribute any
1: of so aliens, but, you know. Uh. Well, look at the apps. Look at the apps that we have for, like, I have an iTouch, too. I've got, like, four or five apps that I use on investigations. I mean, I've got a seismograph app. I've got a, a uh, gravitational, it's like a G-meter app where I can read uh, gravity on three axes. Right to check for gravity fluctuations i mean there's there's all kinds of apps that you could put on these things to turn them into a scientific instrument.
2: well, what do you think about that ghost radar app? <laughs> That's bullshit
1: <laughs> that, you know what that Sorry, is? Jeff. If you look at it, 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 it If you look at it, it clearly tells you that it's an emulator, and what it does is it emulates based off the carrier frequency it's receiving for the carrier
2: uh-huh.
1: I mean think about a cell phone or or something that's dealing with Wi-Fi, how are you going to quantify measuring EMF if it's getting its information through EMF? You know, it's always receiving EMF. Yeah. And it's got a a Wi-Fi receiver in it. That's how that app works. It uses the Wi-Fi receiver to get it. And what they do is is they build a little uh, emulation program protocol that takes that carrier wave and turns it into an entertaining little device there. Hmm. However, the gravitational apps and the seismographic apps are actually very scientific because they're based off the accelerometer that's built into the device, which allows it to reposition the screen display no matter which way you turn it. right. They use that de- they use that technology, the accelerometer, to uh, run three it detects on three axes, so it's very easy to write a code string to get it to measure gravity, acceleration. Or a seismographic vibration based on the, uh, the different vibration that the accelerometer senses. So it's actually a very accurate and scientific application that you can use it on. Wow. But the uh, the uh, ghost detector stuff that's uh, they're they're using the EMF that the device operates on to emulate um, that uh, display. Wow. Um, otherwise, it would be constantly interfering with itself anyway. You would always be re- reading EMF.
2: I see. Yeah, I actually I thought have it, a, I thought it uh, was fun, and what the hell, it was a buck. You know, I mean, give me a break. <laughs>
1: no, no, that's, that's stuff like that. You can always screw around with people. Like I used to do this thing where I would uh, take my uh, cell, my my phone, and my cell phone. Uh-huh. You know, I have a camera in it. I have a BlackBerry with a built-in camera. I would take a little cutout and hold behind it with my index finger, and I would have it in movie mode. And I would hold it up, and I would have all my friends behind the phone with me, you know, where I'm at, looking at it going, man, I I, I don't know. And I would move my index finger, and this little black thing would go across the, the lens. <laughs> 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 and they were looking, and I don't see anything there, but the camera's picking it up. And I'm like, yeah, these cameras are great for picking up ghosts. And they would, <laughs> they would swear that we were filming a ghost, and then I showed them what I was doing. Right. You know, and they were like, oh, oh, man, you know, so
2: (laughs) I smell a new app from Roundtree and
1: Associates. (laughs) (laughs) Instant ghost. Film your own ghost. Amaze your friends, you know. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But, uh, you know, it's fun to do stuff with technology. But on the other hand, technology is our greatest tool if we learn how to use it properly. And uh, that's what the book's all about.
0: (laughs) Tell everyone where they can get the book and where they can uh, come find you on the net.
1: You can actually get links to where the book is from my website on the front page. There's a big old picture of the cover of the book. Uh, uh, My website's www.spinvestigations.org. That's spinvestigations.org, one word. Or you can just go to Amazon, type in Paranormal Technology in my name, David Roundtree, with no D in Roundtree, and it will take you to my author's site, which has the book on it. And there's a Kindle version there for nine ninety five as well, oh, for all excellent. you folks with Kindles.
0: Excellent. Well,
1: David... And the Kindle version is, you know, less than half the price of the print version. So.
0: Thank you very much for coming on the show and, and actually doing, geez, almost... Uh, the length of two shows
1: well <laughs> yeah. you know what it's always fun talking to you guys yeah you never know, well. know where we're you never know where we're gonna go
0: that's great great <laughs> thank you thank you and we'll have you back for ufos uh that'll probably be a boxing match but it'll be fun hey, <laughs> it's always fun hey it's all speculation right True.
2: that's right that's right it is fun it is fun yeah. all right david thanks it, very much my man p- food for thought thank you This is Mark Nesbitt. I wrote The Ghosts of Gettysburg. You are listening to Peritopia with Jeff and Jeremy. If you record audio for any purpose, chances are you want it to be
1: heard. You want to attract the largest audience possible who can hear your message. That's where we come in. We're CyberEars.com, a revolutionary Internet service that will host your audio files and help you promote and track its popularity. Considering hosting a podcast to the world, we have all the automated tools to make the process as simple and easy as it can be. No technical mumbo-jumbo to work out. CyberEars.com does all the work for you. You record it, we take care of the rest. So don't delay. Go to CyberEars.com today and register for a free trial account. Upload your audio files and get heard. With CyberEars.com, it's your
2: audio. On your terms.
0: So the Jeff. So the Je. David Roundtree, eh?
2: Yeah, David Roundtree. How about that?
0: That uh that was really interesting on several levels. But if you, you think if we have him back on to talk about UFOs, uh it'll devolve into fisticuffs. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, I just I you know, I don't think uh I don't think David holds our same Thoughts on that, and um, I, I, I think we can have a respectful debate on on those issues. So
0: the funny thing is, no, no I don't,
2: I don't think it'll devolve into anything. No, now. no
0: I'm just kidding. Uh, he sent us the the three pictures of the UFO that he had caught way back mm-hmm. when, and I guess what seventy four. Uh, but they were actually the wrong pictures, and you were worried. You were like, right. what, "What is this? I've seen these on on the net, and they're you know, yeah." The, terrible <laughs> this can't be either he's pulling a fast one or something or maybe no. he's joking joking with us but no it turns out he just sent the wrong pictures so yeah uh, freaked
2: me out a little bit
0: <laughs> so hopefully uh, um he'll be able to send the right ones although he said that they're probably you know buried in a bunch of stuff like it's hard for him to figure out what's what so we may yeah, never see the real photos
2: well he's a, he's a busy guy but we'll uh, I'll I'll ask him again about them uh and we'll probably do that but what do you think as far as what he uh, what he went over as far as what his book contains? I thought it was a lot of great the info. technology aspects.
0: I mean, it actually. Uh, I'm not a ghost hunt guy, and it kind of makes me want to go out and get the book. And you know, it, it, it just oh, sounds like yeah. it's interesting mix of personal stories plus technical stuff plus what not to get. And he said he goes into you know specific brand names of what to get. So I don't know. I mean, for a schmuck like me. It seems like it would even be interesting, even for a schmuck like me.
2: Yeah, I mean I really liked uh, – I liked all of this, the, the the way that he went over getting rid of the crap, the K2 meters, the frank box, uh, all of that was really interesting. And uh, I like even more that he can give you uh, the equipment list that isn't going to cost you an arm and a leg to go out and catch potentially really good evidence with it. That's, that's another good part to me. I'm sure if you get into the more expensive, more elaborate setups that he's got, that you're going to run into a little bit of cash. But by and large, the mic that he talked about from Radio Shack, uh, I bought one of those. I think it was like twenty three ninety nine. So it's not a lot of money uh, to do this and do it in, in a good way. But I got to ask you, I mean, the whole time that he was talking, I – I was listening to the wormholes that I was listening to, all of the technical readings that you can get based on changes in the environment associated with an EVP, a manifestation of some sort, or some sort of movement that doesn't seem to have any origin. Do you think that that kind of – maybe I'm just poisoned. (laughs) I think Hansen has shot me with a syringe full of trickster. And so immediately, what I think about is George saying, "Well, this is basic reductionism. This is not, you know, this is not taking into consideration a lot of the factors we know." Um, do you think that 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 all of the technology and and the the readings based on manifestations or odd movement in the room or EVPs? Do you think that what he's talking about is reducing it into readings and all of that? Is is that kind of what you think? That kind of direction lays in is is it kind of ignores the you know, the marginal elements the the uh, the whole anti-structure elements and all of this. Do you think that, or do you think it's just a, a kind of a different different take on it?
0: Well, that's always been my question. Is you know is this thing always going to be a step ahead of? where we think we are, you know, in terms of we we think we're on top of it and then it's always something else. So now we think we're on top of it in that it's interdimensional coming through wormholes. And then with new knowledge, we'll find out, no, that's not happening either. Uh, is it always going to be that? Or is there a mechanics behind it? I mean, eventually, if something is happening, there has to be a mechanistic thing through which it happens, right? I mean, I don't think that's reducing it. I think it's just sort of giving the innards to the robot. You know, like I, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, how do you not have?
2: How do you not have study of the mechanism?
0: Yeah, how do you not have study of the mechanism? If things are coming to and fro, then is it wrong to notice where they're coming to and fro from? I mean, I I, I don't get.
2: No, I don't. No. I don't
0: get that. That's reducing it in the way that George Hansen seems to think that it is. Unless yeah. he thinks it's all
2: psychological. Well, I, I definitely don't think he thinks that um, because, again, when we mentioned uh, the psychedelic element to to abductions, we, we talked to him about that. And he said that – I said, do you see anything to that? And he says, no, because that's reducing it all to a chemical compound inside the brain, and I don't think that that's correct. Uh, so I don't think that he thinks of that as a psychological. We need to get George back on maybe to talk about that. But um, – you know, I was just wondering. You know, how much how much attention is paid in the technological circles uh, and in the documentation circles of evidence of looking for ghosts or looking for uh, EVP? I, I mean, I find it interesting that they can now uh, that David essentially can pinpoint where an EVP is originating from in the room. I think that's fascinating. Um, I
0: don't. I don't know. I'm suspicious of that stuff. I will say. Really? Yeah, I mean, I feel like he had uh, too many answers. And it's like, well, if the I mean, just my my natural skepticism comes into play where it's like, well, if you really do have these answers, shouldn't we be more on top of this than we are by now? Shouldn't all of science be into this by now? And not just like a think tank of people sort of hashing out the science that might be behind this. I mean, that seems like a pretty big claim to have. We can pinpoint where exactly this is coming from.
2: Well, I mean, I think, you know, it's the same old thing. I mean, we can say all we want that that science is becoming more interested in this. I mean, there may be some edge scientists that are involved in this and are interested in it and and even might be advising uh, some of the more serious people like David Roundtree. But, I mean, overall, I think the whole subject is still mighty damn taboo. I think regardless of what evidence you've got, uh, science is always going to ignore it just by virtue of what it's connected to.
0: So he's saying that, that that he can pinpoint where it's coming from, presumably through a wormhole, right? Well, an origin point. An origin point. Okay. But he's saying wormhole, but we can't even get people to say that wormholes exist in the way that he says wormholes exist.
2: Right. Right. I mean, you got to look at the whole thing as some kind of working hypothesis. I don't,
0: I, I, You know, uh,
2: and and that's definitely David's take based on the information that he's gathering. Um, But again, I think this whole paranormal thing I think is always going to lead you down some kind of direction, and then it's going to take a sharp right turn. (laughs) And then you're going to be throwing away uh, a lot of the data that you collected based on its next turn or its next... uh, And I don't think any investigator is beyond that. I think anything that... uh, that that's documented, that has some kind of repeatability like that. I mean, that's what, essentially what, what David was talking about, is there's repeatability. At a given location, we can set up equipment, and uh, all this equipment is, is top-notch. I know what I'm doing with the oscilloscope. He knows his equipment, and he can set up and possibly duplicate evidence. That's one mark for science right there. Uh, it's duplicatable. Uh, so... Why aren't more getting involved? <laughs> because of what it's associated with. I I I think science is always going to have a hard time um, looking at. I I don't think they look at it. I I don't think they'd even take a take a step that direction. Um, like I said, maybe some of the borderline uh, guys who are not uh, uh, not so horribly visible in the scientific circles, or maybe. They are visible and they, they, they do it from the side or, or incognito in some way that they're kind of advising people to look here or look there. But,
0: um, well, yeah, and uh, he's, he, you know, he, he would make the argument that it's a generational thing, and yet, yeah, Dan Hooper, who we've had on, is not an old gent, yeah, um, and he doesn't even see wormholes or the universe or theoretical physics or any of that working in the same way that, uh, David does, so. Right. Um, and, you know, he's a big-time physicist. Uh-huh. So what do you do with that? <laughs> you So, I mean, I, I put that up against saying we can tell where they're coming from in the room. I mean, that, that just – something doesn't jive with that with me. But um, then again, part of that, or maybe even all of it, is my ignorance because I haven't really been on ghost hunts except for, you know, the one that we did. And I haven't – used his technology. I haven't seen him use it. I don't know what he's even really talking about um, in working terms. So maybe I would need to see that. Uh, yeah. could even say.
2: I mean, I would say it's, it's based on what he was talking about. I think it's completely conceivable that he could be pinpointing where they're coming from. But
0: wouldn't that change everything? Uh, like, wouldn't that just change science? I can pinpoint in the room where a seemingly dead person is coming from (laughs) through a wormhole. I mean, all of that is like changes the foundation of everything. Doesn't it? I mean, that's a screw the CERN collider.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Let's get Dave Roundtree with an oscilloscope and we got it all figured out. Yeah, I think it, I think it might, uh, well, I don't know. See, the problem for me is, is that you have to, you have to, you, you level the definition of a dead person. Um, and, For my money, I think a lot of this stuff is probably what we've talked about before on the show, which is, like, some kind of time slip or some kind of...
0: Well, even that. I mean, anything, any of those things are, like, earth-shattering, you know, foundation of man has just (laughs) come unglued. Sure,
2: but again, I mean, but again, it's elusive. I mean, again, you throw that elusive nature into this. You throw in that, I mean, how many times have you heard of... We can go at any given time and get EVPs. Okay, great. Well, where can you get them in in a certain place? And then who knows how this – I mean, again, it reacts to the reaction. So if it's reacting to the reaction of being noticed, is it going to show up again? I don't think any of this stuff is all that uh, duplicatable on a routine basis. And so therefore to say we can pinpoint where it is in the room may be valid, but it's only valid for that one instance, and so is that valuable? I don't know. It's certainly valuable to David in some in the sense that somebody's pinpointing a certain spot, and so therefore they can watch that spot in the room where they can aim the cameras or they can set up the mics or whatever in that certain area and see if it duplicates itself over and over and over. Um, is that going to change everything? Uh I I guess it would if more people embraced it and actually looked at David's data more than um you know some some people in in an enclosed you well know, I presume is probably some sort of private little think tank uh or or message board I mean I, I don't know maybe it's maybe it trickles down I don't know uh it certainly should change things it should change uh or it should solidify some thoughts or hints towards Uh, any theoretical physics that deal with wormholes or uh, uh, space-time continuums and that sort of thing. It it certainly should do something for that. You're making a
0: good point there, which is if this thing, uh, you can locate it in the room, but it's not in the same place twice, then does it matter that you can find it in the room? Because there's still no way to – it's not like you've just located the telephone line to the other side. (sighs)
2: Right, right, you can't and like open David said
0: you can't you know
2: <laughs> you can't control it right uh and and like David said, these things uh the wormholes form, and then they can destabilize at any minute it's they're they're a complete they're an anomaly alone all by themselves, I mean, how do you stabilize something like that? how do you locate something like that? How do you identify its it seems to be a completely random generation of some kind of phenomena that's allowing this stuff to be recorded. Now, he talked even more about we're working on something that could possibly generate some kind of field that will either uh, cause a wormhole or attract something like that. I mean, again, when you get, start getting into that direction, that's where you lose me um, because I don't, I don't understand how we can do that if we don't know what it is to begin with. <laughs> And and I hope everybody got the poltergeist joke in there that uh, you know, let's not have to uh pull you through the closet and down through the the ceiling on a rope. Um that's where I kind of like went, really? How would you generate something like that? I, I guess but just by generating environmental readings right before an event, I suppose if you could duplicate those room environment points in some kind of data set, then you could possibly have the same thing happen again? Maybe that's what it's about. But um, yeah, it would sure change everything, you know. If you could, if you got a pipeline to uh, to elsewhere, that would be pretty interesting. Especially if you could duplicate it on a routine basis.
0: Bills. Um, now we're cutting short this week because the the episode ran so long. So maybe yeah. we should switch gears and. Um, well, once again, thank you, David Roundtree.
2: Yes, thank you, David. Uh,
0: for giving us so much of your time. That was great. And, of course, he'll be back. He'll be back. Um, so, Jeremy. So, Jeff. See see how that works? What? <laughs> well, You'll I was notice. Ex- I wasn't expecting you to say, so, Jeremy. So, Jeremy. Okay.
2: That's okay. Uh, so, Jeremy, if you if you look uh, at paratopia.net, this week, everyone, I'm sure, has noticed the message board color change. There is now a website for Paratopia. Yay. Yay. After what? Almost two years? We That's have a right. website.
0: <laughs> it was worth the wait, though. It's cool.
2: <laughs> it, yeah, it came out really good. And uh,
0: Kudos to you, my friend.
2: Thank you. And, uh, and if, if you go there, you'll see that uh, Jeremy has his vlog set up. My blog is set up, which I think I may convert to a vlog after seeing what kind of fun Jeremy has with video. And it looks like fun, indeed. So I'll probably do that as well. Uh, there also is the link to our message board, and there is also a chat room in there, which I think we may do some kind of, I don't know, scheduled chats at some point in the future. Uh, but for now, everybody can go in there on an on appointment night. Set your own night up to go in there with your buddies and, uh, and talk shop about Peritopia and what we covered on the show.
0: There's also a running news feed.
2: That's correct. On the right-hand side, you'll see a running news feed, uh, some of our sponsor links, and uh, a very modest amount of advertisement, which we're not charging for. It's just—it's just there.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, by sponsor links, you mean just people we're kind of just friendly. people
2: we know. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then, uh, I guess the big announcement that we've been avoiding now for weeks is good night, everybody. Now well is well played, sir. <laughs> well played. Is that um, at the, the behest of many of our listeners? Yes, that's right. You asked for it. Well, we're going to give it to you. Premium content is coming within the next couple of weeks. Dun-dun-dun. Dun-dun-dun. And many people have asked for this, and hell, we see it as a way to fund uh, a lot of things that we want to do, namely, well, the website expansion, which we want to do more message boards, we want to do more... um, interactive stuff like video. Jeremy has video projects he wants to do. You
0: know what, Jeff? Don't give it all away. Don't give it all away. Let's, uh, unroll, uh, let's unroll our... Quiet, Jeff. Hold me back. <laughs> let's, let's unroll our ideas throughout the weeks.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, there's going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot of content. So you're going to be able to buy episodes. Uh, well, let's, let's make this the, uh, uh, the, the first thought. All of the episodes we've already done will always be free to everyone bar none. And you can see them all in our archives list on paratopia.net. Just click archives at the top. It'll take you to all of the shows from episode one on. From the point that we say we're going to premium content, which will be in the next couple of weeks, uh, you will be able to buy uh, singular episodes if you don't want to subscribe for a month, or you can subscribe for a month. And with that month, you also get Essentially, a private message board for only premium content subscribers, where Jeremy and I will be spending the majority of our time uh, talking to listeners. So, uh, there's that at the start, but we've got other things in the works for premium content, folks.
0: Don't tell them, Jeff. Don't tell them.
2: Okay. But it's cool, and I think you guys will dig it. So, all these things are coming up. Anything you wanted to talk about as far as premium content goes, Chair?
0: Well, Jeff, I'm glad you asked, um, as everyone knows, we had changed the format to listener generated shows um, which a few people did, but not as many as we had liked or wow. hoped um, because you want us to do these shows that's the message i'm getting yeah, uh, however, I think for premium subscribers, we will continue that so so that if you are a premium subscriber and you get a you know the monthly service. And you want to do your own show, I will produce uh, your show for you. So that'll be one extra thing. And then I think the rest of it should uh, remain a mystery and we'll just be rolling it out uh, over the course of time.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Well, I think one will be coming sooner than later because I think we're going to try and get together this weekend on Skype and, and work out details of the other. But... Yeah, so, I mean, there's big things coming up and a lot more Paratopia content for people willing to open their wallets for us. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes, we've won your hearts and minds. Now we, just now we want wallets. your money. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, I mean, I, I think, like, just in, in looking uh, over the net at other people who provide premium content, I don't think anyone is going to be as ambitious as we are in terms of, uh, the types of things that we would like to do, you know, once yeah. we see this really take off, um, we're going to keep evolving and it's not like the price is going to go up. So uh, mm-hmm. I think this is going to be the beginning of something great.
2: I think – and I think this is this is why a lot of people pushed us to do premium is because it does enable you to do more. <laughs> I mean ultimately that's what it is. I'm not quitting my day job by any stretch, but that's that's what it enables you to do. I mean all of this stuff does cost money to, to do – uh, all the different projects that we're talking privately about for now, but that we're, we're going to be rolling out to people. So, you know, I think that's going to enable us to provide more stuff and do more things with listeners, like trips and all that sort of thing. So, um, so yeah, keep uh, keep tuned in, and uh, we'll give you more data on that uh, probably next week, right?
0: That sounds, uh, sounds good, yeah. Excellent. Well, for now, I'm Jeremy Vaney.
2: And I'm Jeff Ritzman.
0: And we're signing off. Good night. And good luck. And thank you again, David Rantry.
2: Oh, Dave. yes. Thanks, Dave. <laughs> the end. Bye. <laughs>